Hi, I'm Edward Sree, and welcome to All Things Catholic, where real faith meets real life. Let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to the special edition of All Things Catholic. I'm your host, Edward Sree, and we are on location here in the Holy Land on pilgrimage at the Mount of the Beatitudes, the church that commemorates the place where Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to have a beautiful mass up here. We're going to have quiet time to take this in. But what I want to do is bring you into the story of those Beatitudes. Uh, and there's many spiritual reflections on these amazing eight blessings that Jesus announces here on the Sermon of the Mount, on, on the mountain here in Galilee. Many saints have reflected on these throughout the eras, uh, thinking about the spiritual life, the moral life. What I want to do is help you look at it from a historical perspective. If you were a Jew in the first century and you heard these words, this would have been revolutionary in a very dramatic way. Uh, and that's what I want to bring us in on here because here's, here's the context. Sometimes I think we hear the words of Jesus and we hear a parable, we hear a teaching, but we just kind of take it out of its context and, and we could still get a lot of value from that. But when you can put it in its original context, first century Jewish world, it'll be so much more meaningful. So here's the situation. In the first century Jewish world of Jesus, they are living in a time of great crisis. They are under Roman rule. The Gentiles, the Romans are ruling over them. They're imposing heavy taxes on the people. They're living in this land. They're bringing in their pagan lifestyle, their pagan worship into this holy land that's supposed to be set apart for God. And if you're a Jew in the first century, there are many different answers to the question of how do I remain faithful in the midst of this cultural crisis? How do I be a faithful Jew? There might be some people that would say, you know, wow, there's all these taxes we have to pay to Herod and to Caesar. And we're also, I know by the Torah, called to pay the temple tax as well. And we're supposed to tithe and I, I can't do all of this. And so what, what do I do? And there'd be some Jews that would say, well, you know, you got to compromise and, you know, maybe you just pay Herod. You pay the Romans the tax. You know, it's not like the temple priests are going to come knocking on your door and, and threatening you if you don't pay. So if you have to make a choice, just pay the Romans so you could save your life, save your property, save your family. But there would be other Jews living here in Galilee that would be say that that would be very upset by that approach. And they would say, you are a traitor. No, don't you know you're supposed to put God first. You better pay the tithe and the temple tax first before you pay Caesar. And so do you see how there's different answers to the same kind of problem? Uh, what do you do when you have these Gentiles, these Romans, and people from all over the ancient Greek world living among you? Do you interact with them? Do you do business with them? Some Jews had, again, different answers to this question. Some would say, you don't even talk to them. You don't even come near them. You'll become richly unclean. There's others that would say, well, we, we got to work with them. We can assimilate a bit here. Diverse answers to the same question big questions. So political oppression, the social crisis they're facing with Roman rule, wasn't just a political question. It was a religious one. And there were four main philosophies. The, the first century Jewish historian Josephus talks about four main philosophies in the first century, four approaches that were the, some of the most common ones. 
First of all, there's the approach of the Sadducees. Who are the Sadducees? They are the Jewish aristocrats in Jerusalem. Many of them are the chief priests, the ones that are in charge of running the temple. And their approach is this. We're going to just maintain the status quo. We don't want to do anything to stir up Roman armies to rise up against us. We are in charge of the temple. We want to keep the temple going. Uh, we're not going to try to bring about great reform, revolution. We're not interested in that. We have the best, uh, of all the groups in Israel, if we're part of the Sadducees, we would have the best situation because we were given certain autonomy from Herod and from the Romans. Uh, we could hear court cases. We could keep a treasury. You know, we were in positions of power and influence. So we don't want to, we're not happy that the Romans are here, but we're going to try our best to work with them. And, and we've got the best deal. We want to just keep the temple system going. Don't do anything to stir up the pot. So that's why they're so sad, you see. <laughs> All right. Then you have the other group known as the Pharisees. Pharisees, which is literally meaning the separate ones. Uh, and the idea is that they want to be separate from all that's unclean. And the idea is that they, they can see that there's all this uncleanliness around them. The Romans, the Gentiles, pagans around them living in impure pagan life. We, don't, we can't control that. We can't control that they are ruling over us. But the one area we do have control over is our own personal purity, our own souls. And so we are going to emphasize following the law to the T. Because it's faithfulness to the law that will bring about real renewal. I think sometimes the Pharisees get a bad reputation. You know, they, they're often viewed as like the legalistic, cold-hearted, just got to follow all the rules. I want you to try to understand where they're coming from. You know, they knew that according to the prophets, like Jeremiah and the other prophets, that the reason the pagans are ruling over them, starting with Babylon and then the Persians and then the Greeks and now Rome, the reason is because of carelessness with the Torah, carelessness with the law. People not observing the, the Sabbath, people not observing caring for the poor. So it was, it was a carelessness with the law that triggered the curses and brought exile and brought all of this foreign rule over us. And so what do we do? If you're a Pharisee, you say, we're going to emphasize the law. We're going to follow it very carefully. And we're going to, you know, make, make sure no one even comes close to breaking the law. So they added on all these extra man-made traditions uh, that was from a noble heart, I think. They, it wasn't like they just wanted to add on rules, but they just didn't want to come close to breaking the law. So they would add on extra laws on top of what the scriptures actually revealed. That's the Pharisees' perspective, to separate from all that is unholy. Then you have the Essenes. That's a, a third major philosophy approach to the crisis at hand. And what do the Essenes do? The Essenes are, are like Pharisees to the extreme. They think that society is so corrupt, we can't dwell within society, so they want to pull back as much as they can. And so they separate from society altogether, many of them. They, they have their own community out by the Dead Sea, like a monastic-like existence there. They emphasize separation from society because it's all corrupt. The priests are corrupt. The temple's even corrupt. So that's, that's their approach. And then you have the fourth philosophy of the revolutionaries. They're the ones that are saying, you know what? If you're a true Jew, if you're truly faithful to God, you should trust God and take up arms and fight off these pagans that are ruling over us. You know, that's what God did in the time of Moses in the Exodus. He liberated them from the pharaohs and the Egyptians back then, right? Uh, that's what that God has always done. He, he liberated David, you know, to, to be able to conquer Goliath. He gave liberation to the, the Maccabees when they rose up against the, the Syrians who were ruling over them. So if you really trust God, then you should be willing to take up arms. Maybe you're not going to fight today, but you're ready, you're preparing, you're hoping for that moment. So do you all see different responses to that question? So now let's go to our biblical story at hand, 
the gospel story that took place on this mountain in Galilee here. Think about what happened. Jesus is announcing a kingdom, and people from all over are so excited. They're coming from Syria. They're coming from the Decapolis down on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They're coming from Judea down south coast of Jerusalem. They're coming from all over because they're excited. This could be the kingdom. The long-awaited Messiah might be here. The kingdom that God promised would be restored to us. Maybe it's going to be here. And Jesus comes, and he takes them to the hill country of Galilee, it says in Luke's Gospel, chapter 6. Now, again, the hill country of Galilee, this was not just a geographical marker. It was, if you were doing the first century and you knew about this place, this was a place where many revolt movements were centered. Because in the hill country, you have many caves that could make for good hiding places. And so many of the revolt movements would be there. They would make a raid on Herod's compound and then they'd go back into the, into the hill country, hide in the caves. And, and so it was a center for revolts in the generation leading up to Jesus. So if Jesus was a little boy, there was Judas the Galilean that came out to the hill country and it had a big tax revolt there. So Jesus, he's announcing a kingdom and all the people are coming from all around the area here. And then he says, let's go to the hill country. What's everybody thinking? It's revolution time. It's kingdom time. Let's go. And then when he gets them all here, what does he do? He announces, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. And so when people hear this first blessing that you're going to have the kingdom, this would be really exciting. The, the, the kingdom we've been longing for, David's kingdom, the, the, the restoration of the kingdom of David that we lost when the Babylonians came six centuries ago and, and, and destroyed our land. We're going to get our king back. And then he says, blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. And that idea of comfort it, this, this comes from Isaiah chapter 40. This isn't just God coming and giving you a hug. He does want to hug us and embrace us and our sorrows and all that, of course. But, but a Jew in the first century, when they hear, you will have comfort, they're thinking of Isaiah 40 comfort. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah are known as the book of judgment. Most of those 39 chapters are about judgment on Israel for their lack of faithfulness. And then after you read 39 chapters of Isaiah, you need comfort <laughs> when you get to chapter 40. But 40 through 66 is the good news. God's going to come, restore his people, rescue them. And so when Jesus announces comfort, this isn't just in some vague sense in the first century Jewish world. This is Isaiah 40 comfort that they're longing for the prophecies to be fulfilled, the restoration of Israel. And then he says, blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the land. They're going to inherit the land. Now, when you hear about the land or sometimes translated the earth, but literally the land, that's not just like, oh, you're going to get some property over there. No, no, no. Every Jew, what are they thinking about? What's the land that they were called to inherit? What is that land? The promised land, this land. And they've not had control over this land for six centuries. Babylon invaded and they were took, taken away. Even when they came back in 515 BC and started to rebuild down south, they still didn't have control over this land. One nation after another after another is always ruling over them all the way up to the time of Rome. This was the land God gave them. But they're like exiles in their own land, living under foreign rule. And Jesus is coming and announcing, you're going to get the land back. Do you hear how exciting this is for the Jews in the first century? And they says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall have their fill. And you can imagine people thinking, well, we're longing for justice. We've been so unjustly treated. These first four Beatitudes, he just captures their attention and their imagination. But then he turns everything upside down in the next four. And he says, blessed are the merciful, 
Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be children of God. Blessed are those who endure persecution for my sake. Now, merciful people, part of the kingdom team, peacemakers, suffering persecution. These would not be the first round draft picks if you were starting a revolution <laughs> and you were trying to you know, overthrow the Romans and, and Herod. This would have been a great challenge. So Jesus draws them in and then he's challenging them saying, if you want this land and you want freedom and you want the kingdom, it has to take place within you first. And if you learn to love and be merciful and become a peacemaker and, and endure persecution, which is why he goes on in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, what's, what did I say earlier on this pilgrimage that the, if you had to pick like a mission statement for Jesus's kingdom, what is it? It comes right after the Beatitudes when he says, go out and be light to the world and salt to the earth. Do you hear how that would be a challenge to all the different philosophies of the first century? Go be light to the world. If you're a Pharisee, you know, they're just trying to like, well, we don't want to change the world. We're just status quo. And Jesus saying, no, you're called to go out and, and be salt to the earth and transform this world. It's a challenge to the Sadducees. It's also a challenge to the Pharisees who are trying to separate themselves from the world. And so are the Essenes. They're separating themselves. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. You are called to go out and be light to the world. And the revolutionaries are trying to fight off the world. And Jesus is saying, no, be light to the world. And how were you going to do that? Through this radical love imitating him. Pope Benedict reflected on how the Beatitudes are like a, a picture, a portrait of Christ's face. You see Jesus when you see the Beatitudes. And we're called to love like that. And when Jesus says things like, love your enemy, think about how that would have sounded. If you were here on this mountain 2,000 years ago, hearing Jesus give the Beatitudes, imagine what that would have meant to you. Love your enemy isn't like, Oh, yeah, he went to that other high school, my rival. <laughs> you know, No, no, no. Love your enemy is love that soldier that came and forced you to pay the tax that you couldn't pay and you lost your family land that had been your family for centuries and now the Roman soldier took that land away from you. Or love that person that raped your daughter, that Roman soldier that raped your daughter last week. Or love that Roman soldier that, 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 that killed Uncle Eli when he went on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Love your enemy was, had, had teeth to it in the first century because there were a lot of enemies all around you that made you suffer. And Jesus was calling those people to love them, to forgive them. When he says, go the extra mile, that's not just like, hey, be generous with your time. <laughs> go do a good deed. Roman soldiers you know, could go up to any Jew and just say, hey, carry my bag for one mile. And I could force any Jew to carry my, all of my, my stuff for a mile. And Jesus, when he says, go the extra mile, is saying, you know, go to that Roman soldier that has caused you so much suffering and be willing to offer him a second mile. This is radical love. And it's this radical love that Jesus lives, particularly on Good Friday, where we see the Beatitudes, that forgiveness, that peacemaking, that, that enduring persecution, that, that mercy the most. When he lives that and then all those apostles and, the, and their successors live it throughout the Roman world, the Roman world is changed and the true followers of Jesus got the land back in the whole world because that gospel has gone to the corners of the world and we are inheritors of that great gospel message that Jesus spoke up here on this mountain in Galilee. So let's close and reflect as we prepare for Mass on how Jesus is inviting us to that radical love. Who are the enemies in our lives that he's inviting us to forgive? Who are the, the people that are difficult to love? 
that frustrate us, annoy us, or uh, maybe even hurt us that we're called to love. That doesn't mean we have to like them, but we are called to love them. We don't have to have warm feelings for them, but love is to will the good of the other. And we could pray for them in the context of Mass. When, when, when the sacrifice is being offered at the words of consecration, we can unite all of our prayers for that person. We can offer our Holy Communion for that person that Jesus is inviting us to love, to love our enemy. And there's great power when we turn our hurt, our frustration into intercession and love. Let's live the Beatitudes. Amen? Amen. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.